Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Alright, uh, so, uh, uh, esteemed, esteemed colleagues, how do we feel about frogs? Frogs set the entire tone of the movie. I mean, uh, really, frogs are the key to all of this. Uh, in fact, I would go so far as to say that frogs are key to pretty much all British culture in, in one degree or another. Some of those degrees may not be very extreme, but the frog is definitely central. Uh, so, so the frog is a reoccurring uh, a character here on the show. And if you go back and listen to our Hell Comes to Frogtown episode, um, I, I coined the phrase the Anurocene, the age of frogs. And I, I think that psychomania... Uh, uh, not only not only proves what I was talking about in that episode, but actually suggests that it starts decades earlier than I originally recognized. Uh, yeah, frog cinema. Frog cinema is um, is 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 definitely a trend, and um, this is a film which is part of that canon. The frog discourse is expanded, and without the frog, this movie this movie is nothing. It begins with the frog. It ends with the frog. That's true. It's got, it's got it's got this uh this this kind of evolution of a life cycle that the frog has, right? From from egg to tadpole to frog and back again. It's the it's the cycle of birth and death, you know. The, this movie like some kind of frog come phoenix just keeps rising from its own ashes. Um Hello everybody. <laughs> I I have decided I have I have decided to try and corroll this episode. Uh, uh, into into some shape. Welcome to your horror vanguard for this week. Uh, we're talking about frogs, and as you can tell, we have a guest here in the HV crypt as we continue our trawl through requests month. Uh, Frank from the left pages here. How you doing, Frank? Hello. I'm so happy to be here again. The horror uh, vanguard crypt is a lovely, warm place. <laughs> Hell yeah, it is. It's warmed by the light of your friendship. Uh, as we always talk about on this show, really, this is this is a podcast about the three most important things: the overthrow of capitalism, scary movies, and friendship. Um, what what more do you need? What more do you need in life? Um, True. But 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 Frank, do you want to nothing? Do you want to maybe uh, do you want to maybe uh, just remind people? About about what you do, your show, where people can find you, and where they can support what you're doing. I hello, I'm Frank. I run a a, a lift a, a lift a left literature podcast um, where I talk about books and novels and fiction and also nonfiction sometimes um, with great friends and just have a blast talking about weird stuff and cool stuff and new and old stuff. And it's just a fun time where I talk about literature. And you can find what I do on left page on at left page pod on Twitter. And I, I I release episodes monthly. And I have some Patreon content where I both write a bit about so many things and talk a bit more as a shorter bonus episode about writing and things to think about when writing and politics and genre and well my next one's gonna be about religion so that's gonna be fun um Mm -hmm. and yeah and you can support me on patreon at patreon.com forward slash left page where i put my stuff there uh you can find me on twitter and 
wherever you get your podcasts at. Uh, and all of those links will be in the show notes. They'll be posted on our Patreon page. And I cannot recommend enough following Frank and the left page for their brilliant, elevated, galaxy-connected content. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we've done we've done an episode on Zardos. We have done uh, we talked about Thomas Ligotti on left page. We talked about Bram Stoker. Um, it is it is genuinely a great show, and we are. We're we're so glad that you're back on the pod to to talk about yes to talk about what I think is just a, a deeply normal film, uh, a great bit of so <laughs> a great bit of social realism about what life was like in the early 1970s in Britain. Um, but it's a bit of a cult. I think it's fair to say, Frank, this is a bit of a cult classic. So I have been excited about this all day. Um, so um, Ash, my dear friend co-ghost of the show would you mind just laying it all out there what is today's film psychomania really all about one 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 momento por favor the film psychomania is the site of immense cultural struggle it speaks to an international, unresolved cultural dialectic, a cycle not unlike the eternal wheel of birth and death, the Hegelian movement of punks and hippies. Rather than being a diametrically opposed, these two countercultural movements are diametrically conjoined. Both are a dropout rejection of a clearly failed capitalistic system and a rejoinder to hegemony. Both have been subsumed, near totally as anything can, into the very frameworks they wish to resist. Both have been resurrected and rejected throughout the intervening years as everything from prepackaged Halloween costumes to rejuvenated countercultures. And this is where we find the linkage, the bridge that connects, a bridge that leads us to the warm embrace of the grave. Caitlin Doherty wrote, Accepting death doesn't mean you won't be devastated when someone you love dies. It means you will be able to focus on your grief, unburdened by bigger existential questions like, why do people die? Why is this happening to me? Death isn't happening to you. Death is happening to us all. Death is the underlying structure of life. Death and life are fluid states that reach into each other and demonstrate, as Kafka said, that the meaning of life is that it ends. Psychomania is a cinematic recognition of the moment of death. This film, in the entirety of its runtime, is the last flickering light in the eye of a dying man. It is respect upon the name of the incomplete, those who have sent parts of their being to rest within the embrace of the earth. Our youthful biker gang dies, our townsfolk die, our matrilineal satanic glory dies. But what lives on is the dark birth of occult potential itself. Represented here as an emissary of Satan embracing Psychomania's final girl. But felt the world over as a silent voice on the breeze. A sworn recognition that change is coming and the only way we weather the storm is together. As friends, comrades, lovers, and memories. Join us as we discuss 1973's The Death Wheelers. Oh, oh it was as good as I hoped. Yeah, yeah, a round of applause. Round of applause. Round of applause. Uh, it was it was as good as I hoped and I expected, and 
if you would like to ensure that this show continues and that we can generate more of the very best spooky left film criticism, please do remember that you can support the show through patreon.com slash horror vanguard, where you get early access to everything we release, monthly bonus episodes, and of course, exclusive access to the HV crypt, the spookiest leftist discord server that talks about horror movies, the overthrow of capitalism and good vibes with friends. With all that said, uh, I believe it is time to embark on the journey laid out before us by by Ash and enter the formalism zone. So what do we do? do, 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 do dun, 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 dun. What what do we think of the of the, kind of the, the the formal right, elements so, of, of this? So so the first the first thing that I think uh, we need to talk about, and I'm going to force us to talk about because it's probably stunting so much fun and it, it, it is really fun in this movie it's light-hearted uh <laughs> it's it's the youths on bikes which were supposed to be harleys but aren't um having a good time <laughs> and committing uh inverted commas violence but just having a blast and creating interesting ways to well cross over C- committing the most quaint and adorable monty python level of british violence i have ever seen yeah yeah it's slapstick right it's slapstick this is completely this is, like they even do they even do the classic they even do the classic slapstick bit of like oh no the guy's on top of the ladder and we're gonna knock him off and it's like this this that's a joke that people would have rec- have recognized for literally 600 years. And so, so it's like <laughs> and we we get that one scene too where um oh my god what is the name of our characters? Jane. Okay, Jane, right? Like the the woman who takes over the living dead biker gang. Uh, newly minted undead and they're terrorizing uh, a grocery store, right? They just pop into the shop on their motorcycles and knock stuff off the shelves and just be awesome. And uh, two things I want to point out about that sequence uh, and this ties into the stunt work. First and foremost, uh, uh, Jane destroys a bunch of Kellogg's products, which I can only assume is a statement of solidarity to the striking Kellogg workers. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, we'll link to some strike funds down in the chat. The chat. Wow, I don't even know what platform I'm on right now. We'll link to them in the ether. They'll they'll be connected to your soul somehow. But we get this amazing sequence where she where she turns to Tom and she's like, "Check this out!" And she just runs her motorcycle straight through a, a, a mom with a a carriage like you'd have a baby in, right? Like a pram, and then just like falls over after that. And the mom is just like, oh, my baby. And it's just like, it's delivered with such flawless comedic timing. It fe- This feels like a Monty Python bit. It feels like it's drawing from that same cultural milieu. I mean, if we want to talk about a Monty Python sequence, the, the, there is no other than the suicide montage. Yeah. Uh, yes. The the genuinely incredible suicide montage. And like normally on the show, we don't we don't talk about like serious real world uh, things in a glib way. But this is not a film that takes its own subject matter terribly seriously. 
It's like they're all cartoon characters because one of them, <laughs> one of them, literally like wraps a chain and anchor around themselves and throws <laughs> themselves into the river. I, I I couldn't help but think like if you're gonna do that, like why would you choose drowning? Clearly there are other options, and the others clearly choose better. Right, like I think it's I think it's chopped meat. One of our bikers who has like. This is honestly my favorite, one of my favorite sequences in the movie, right? So, so Chop Meat uh, deliberately parks in like a no motorcycle parking zone. And he like sets his guitar down and it's really like, it's almost like tender how, how, how he's going about kind of preparing for his death. And then he bumps into like a, a normal, attractive, young, blonde woman. And she's like, is that your motorcycle? It looks very fast. And then he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I have to go commit demon suicide to live forever now. And like, there's like a, there was like a taste of tragedy with him. And then it immediately cuts to like the other dudes just saying, eh, fuck it. And jumping off of bridges and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Also, also, Ash, can I just ask, and I mean this in all sincerity, can you do the rest of the entire episode using that? Honestly, flawless British accent. I just... <laughs> Hello, governor. Oh, I'm going oh. to do the rest of the episode in my British accent. Oh, no. <laughs> what have I done? You have unleashed you, you wished this. There's a reason I don't do accents ever on this show, and that's because I'm real bad at it. You wished for this. <laughs> Um, and I, I, I love the fact that like he's leaning out of the window when the policeman comes and goes, "Hey, that's my bike that you're about to ticket." Yeah. And, and the policeman's like, <laughs> come "Well, down here and get well, it. you better come down here and sort this out, mate." And he just jumps out of the window. He's <laughs> like, "I'm on my way." <laughs> jumps. It's so there. There's so much. This movie. It's almost like it's almost got that reanimator quality to it. Like it's got this like weird kind of like. <laughs> it, it, it lacks the perversion of Frank Henenlotter, but it shares that kind of sense of humor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a weird glee the, a lot of the time. And, like, mentioning Jane, like, running over the, the, the carriage. Uh, she's just, like, having fun, living her best undead life. Yeah, I, I, f- I find that to be really interesting. And I think like, so so one of the stunt work things to try and ground what we're attempting to do here uh, that I find to be really interesting is that like in an interview with the um, uh, 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 stunt, uh, the guy who did the stunts for um, Beryl Reed, uh, not Beryl Reed's character, sorry, <laughs> Nick, Nikki Henson's character, Tom Latham, the guy who did the stunts for Tom Latham, um, like this was like a weird shoot for him like a lot of that running motorcycles through solid like england is a very damp place uh historically speaking so when you try and make like an easily breakable false wood wall it's gonna like turn to goo and re-solidify pretty quickly so there's uh there's a bunch of like uh cut takes where they're trying to run through these like fake wood and fake brick walls and like they can't and so it's literally just dudes running head on into walls and I think that that speaks to this attitude of like this movie on the knife's edge, right? This thing that's like it's it's full core, but it's not. It's it's a movie about Satanism and resurrection, but it's not. It's a Monty Python comedy, but it's not. It's in this weird kind of it's it's at that moment of death, right? It's unresolved. It's countercultural, um, but folk horror. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think one element of the film that really reinforces that is the genuinely, like, unreasonably good uh, score. Yes. Oh, this slaps so hard. Uh, I am not over the score yet. I've, I've like, played this movie in the background just to listen to it. Yeah, the uh, the opening sequence, um, uh, I like watching films with uh, subtitles on just to make sure I don't miss important bits of dialogue. And so... <laughs> Uh, the closed captioning just said uh, psychedelic guitar riff. And I was like, yes, that's, there you, there you go. It's uh, right. It's this, co- it's this combination of like folk with psychedelic guitar with like classic horror movie jump scare stings in there. Uh, what do you, what do you both think about the score? Oh, I love it. I, I love this score, right? Because it's. I think like you know we're all like touching on this movie as being weirdly on boundary zones right like this is this is liminal in every respect and the score is also straddling the space right you know like this is 1973 like psychedelia has just been laid to rest uh, and and punk and rock is slowly like gathering itself to become the new you know countercultural force du jour and the movie's soundtrack is in this weird conversation with it. It does feel like, what if you made a psychedelia soundtrack that was actively at the moment of death for the entire time? Yeah, it really brings about both like a lot of psychedelia and a lot of hippie, like uh, recognizably hippie uh, song. And, and, and we're going to talk about the funeral uh, because it's it's a thing on its own. But it also has like these guitar riffs, this more intense vibes of, at various points. So it like it brings both about and plays with them. Like I, for how bizarre and at times like dark themes, which are taken lightly, oddly enough, this film is somewhat gleeful and playful in all that it's doing in the stunt work, in the soundtrack, and generally doing interesting and good stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. It came out in nineteen. 19- yeah, how about, how about you? It came out in nineteen seventy-three. It comes out the same year as Robin Hardy's *The Wicker Man*. Um, and I did not think that I would make this claim, but if we're thinking about them sonically, then those two films represent kind of dialectical poles in a kind of cultural evolution. So I would say that *Psychomania*, in terms of in terms of its sound, is the dialectical is the punk dialectical opposite of Robin Hardy's folk horror, the wicker man, you know, like, and, and you, you're completely correct. The, the counterculture is kind of burning to ash, right? You know, the, 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 the smoke from the wicker man illuminates a, a post Manson counter, countercultural landscape, you know, the, the kind of naive dreams of the, the, the hippie folk movement have kind of lapsed into something really quite dark and unpleasant. Uh, and you know, there's this there's this emerging psychedelic rock that comes out of it. It's it's so interesting. Yeah, what I find to be really interesting about that kind of dichotomous intertwining between you know, because punk is the thing that finally you know banishes the specter of hippies. Uh, and and now they both just linger on eternally under capitalism. Capitalist realism is like undead cultural forces. But one of the things in this movie that I find to be really interesting um, is is that weird kind of balance, right? You've got this haunting, the haunting ghost of the psychedelic is all over this movie, right? You've got 
an emissary of Satan as the butler of an eternal sorceress matriarch. And that's like background noise for this movie. Like, like we, we do not get to spend any time with Mrs. Latham and, and her world and her powers. And like, we, like we'll talk about the room later, but like all of that stuff is in the background. And in the foreground is this like childish bunch of ruffians who simultaneously recognize that there is a systemic problem and it needs to be directly confronted, but also they're mad at their teachers for assigning them homework and their parents for grounding them. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, should we should we talk about the fact that this is a communist horror movie as well? Yes, we need to talk about fellow Wisconsinite Joseph McCarthy. Uh, so this 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 is um, this is written by uh, two um, communist expatriates uh, people who uh, writers who were I think I think both European ended up moving to America and were both blacklisted during various stages of Amer- of Hollywood's um, insidious uh, anti-communist panic. Uh, one of the writers w- w- was brought to testify before McCarthy um, and said that he would happily answer any of the senator's questions about communism, but not in a situation where the cards were so stacked against him. Said nothing at all. Uh, and both of them, both, both of the writers had careers that greatly suffered uh, for their inv- like, it, it, and it's not even kind of totally clear how involved in communist or, uh, organizations they were. You know, the the Hollywood blacklists swept up literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people who may have done nothing more than just sign a petition or go to a meeting. Uh, but I, I think this is a, a good a good enough excuse to talk about the writing in this film, which is kind of incredible. <laughs> It really is. Uh, uh, yes, it is. So I just want, I just want to share my 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 single favorite line in in this movie, as well as my favorite line delivery. Uh, so as Tom is encouraging his friends to die so they can live forever, uh, he he turns to his 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 good biker buddy Hatchet and says, "You can only die once. After that, nobody and nothing can harm you." And the delivery is so good. Like you feel it. It's just, ooh, ooh, that's that's bad. Ooh, I love it. Uh, what about you, Frank? What what are your thoughts on the writing? It's it's really incredible on like every like I, I generally think like the the deliveries and the writing is is good. Because like there's we're mentioning like uh, Mrs. Latham and like how we spend so little time with her, and yet like there's this really bizarre scene where uh, Abby, uh, Tom's uh, Tom, who is the first one to cross over, he uh, he's still before he resurrects. Uh, she goes to her house and is like, "Oh, is that's what happened?" And like he's he might come back. Um, oh no, she's going to ask them to do like a funeral the way that they wanted as the living dad biker gang. And, uh, and then her mother goes like, you're not what I expected. You're wearing a dress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, it's, it's genuinely it's a got lot some, of, it's a lot of fun. It really is. And like Shadwell the whole time, like he's only good one liners. We're mentioning the frogs and how the frogs set the entire tone of the movie. Uh, at the start, Tom brings a frog into the into his mansion where he lives, where his family lives, uh, her mother and 
Shadwell the butler, who calls her darling. And whenever he puts the frog into like a, a like a, a, a glass dome, like the sort of for, oh, I'm getting confused in words and languages, uh, for cakes. And like uh, uh, Shadwell comes into the room and he's like, oh, he's going to complain and going to yell at him about bringing a frog to the house. He's like, oh, a frog. He that's not very common anymore, only to be found in graveyards. That's very good of you. Very good. So, you know, that's that's some good dialogue right there. Uh, and also, we should we should point out that uh, Shadwell is played by genuinely legendary Oscar-winning British actor George Saunders, uh, who yes. uh, right w- won an Oscar for the for the uh, his performances Addison DeWitt in All About Eve uh, was the voice was the voice of Shere Khan in the um, in the Jungle Book, um, like a- incredibly mag- magnetic screen presence. Um, this was this was the very final film that uh, Saunders uh, finished before uh, he died from suicide, um, and just you know, R.I.P. George Saunders because like he's, he's incredible in this film. He doesn't oh, ab- phone ab- it in. Absolutely, he like he gives it all. Oh, yeah, and it's like he's there. He's Shadwell. He's the Frog God. He's all there, and he's amazing. Truly, truly fantastic. And speaking of being amazing, uh, the the first thing our, our protagonist does in this movie is call after becoming undead, right? And and I guess we should flag up here that these aren't like zombies. They, they don't become like George Romero zombies. They become like emissaries of dark power. You know, they are they are now eternal, right? They are now arcane. That you know, this isn't a simple zombification with like easily readable rules like oh you can't be out in sunlight or anything like that like the, these are now elevated beings of darkness and after after ascending to to his unhallowed position uh the first thing tom does is uh get a pint and call his mom and uh this is a, this is a reminder everyone out there uh call call your mom say hello uh chat for a bit and support horror vanguard and the left page on patreon Moms across the country and across the world, from beyond the grave and in the world of the living, support the left page and Horror Vanguard on Patreon.com. Well, um, what a, what a what a great what a, <laughs> what a great way to wrap up our our quick exploration of some of the formal elements uh, of Seamless. this film. So, I suggest we all we all hop hop onto our uh, Harley knockoff bikes and ride off, ride free into some discourse hell yeah so who wants to talk about weird cultural dissonance i i am sort of obsessed with this fact about the film that this is this is so clearly a, like an interstitial point in the development of, of like a, a, a kind of convincing british uh filmmaking aesthetic um so it's it's caught like almost like it's almost like it's a it's a moment frozen in time between two dominant styles between like the kind of hippieish counterculture that was really in like three or four years earlier and it starts starting to take on some of the kind of like punk nihilism of something that would really come to the fore culturally in three or four more years time 
So it's this tiny kind of like time capsule that preserves two, two kind of like different polarities of culture sort of starting to, to, to pull at one another. Yeah, Frank. So, what are your what are your thoughts on kind of like the the cultural dissonance happening in Psychomania? I mean, one of the really interesting things about this is like this, um, and that's why I think like the funeral is such an interesting scene on how it's between the counterculture and this punk nihilism. Um, despite it being, and this is only adds to how weird and particular this film is, is that there is there's barely any blood or at all. There's no drugs. The violence is minimal or comedic. Uh, there's no sex, and just it's very. It, I mean, the way a, a friend put it to me, uh, it's a very middle class sort of film aesthetic, and and yet we have these biker gangs or this biker gang, the Living Dead, uh, who become a satanic force, and. At the particular moment, in terms of the, like how we, it sits in between, like, okay, there are these very bizarre, weird gang, and then, like, Tom commits suicide and it will cross over, but they don't know that yet. Um, so they held the most bizarre funeral I have ever seen in a movie. Um, where... Okay, Frank, 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 why don't, why don't you... Br- why don't you break down the funeral for us? What? Yes, that's like, all I want to do. Just lay it all out for us here. Okay, so as I, as I had previously mentioned, we have Abby, the girlfriend, asking the family or her mother and Chadwell is like, oh, if it's okay, if we can do our own funeral with the body the way we like and he like. And we cut back to their like their main hub, so to speak, like where, where they hang out most of the time, where it's... Uh, it's the Seven Witches, which is faux Stonehenge. Uh, whether they're legitimate rooms or not, we don't know. But it's reminiscent of that. And <laughs> what do they do? How is their funeral? They're all dressed as hippies uh, with um, bell-bottom trousers, with making flower wreaths, and very good ones. Like They're generally talented at those. Uh, there is an open grave. And what do we see inside? We see Tom, Tom Layton, uh, sitting atop his bike, a corpse, as he's being buried. And we, and one of them sings, sings to fallen Tom. He wrote her to the grave. They tried to clip his wings just like a fly. As they all make their flower wreaths and toss them inside in their biker gang funeral to their fallen leader. And we see the pendulum turn from the bike as they were the biker gang to hippies. As this movie makes a very weird turn or images from, okay, we're, we're this gang and like we're counterculture, but we're more violent, we're punk, but we're, we're now hippies for some reason entirely. Uh, and, and and Ash, do you, do you have do you, what do you think about the funeral? Because I think Frank is right that this is like this is like the hinge that the entire film kind of turns around on, you know. Oh, totally. Uh, so what I find to be really interesting about the funerary scene is that fact is the fact that they present themselves as hippies as a, at a funeral, 
And I don't think that's sardonic. I, I think that is a sign of recuperation, right? The hippie is no longer... Because there was a time in, in, in history where dressing as a hippie at a funeral would have been garish and, and awful. You know, like like that would have been a bridge too far for polite society. But now the movie is signaling to us that that, that age is gone. You know, that now when people want to, like, dress still cool, but, like, business casual, you dress like a hippie, right? It's this weird kind of, like, bending of, of these, like, cultural norms that we watch in real time. Because this is 73. This is way before punk has formalized. You know, this this is the earliest moments of of punk generically beginning to emerge, and so, like, it's it's so all of those moments, the funeral especially, it's such a site of struggle between the two. And I think the fact that Tom is he's obviously buried uh, standing up on his motorcycle for for later scenes when he's resurrected in the coolest resurrection scene ever. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. But I, I think there, there's a lot of symbolic weight to that. Right? He's ready to ride. The motorcycle is. And the biker gang is this this countercultural, anti-authoritarian symbol of freedom. You know, for for better or for worse, this figure is is going to throw cast aside culture's morality and rules and and ride free of everything. And and what is Tom if not the ultimate expression of that? Because here he is casting aside the rule of death. Well, this is actually this is actually what I wanted to bring up, which is the the two divergent broadly divergent positions on death itself right so for the kind of hippie-ish countercultural thing you know the bell bottoms the, the flower crowns the the acoustic guitar songs death is about the reabsorption of the individual subjective consciousness into the wider universe right um whereas which so so which is why you have the funeral in the first place and the funeral is is a, a celebration right it's it's um the kind of like uh, absorption of the self into something grander and greater. Whereas this kind of like punk uh, energy that emerges sees death as kind of like the ultimate thrill. Like what, what do you go on to if you die? Uh, you go on to nothing if you have doubt, but if you have kind of belief, you end up not going back, but kind of looping around. You, you, you end up not going forward rather, not going on to something but rather you end up looping back onto yourself it's so if if the if the, the the hippie philosophy of death is kind of like dissolution the the punk attitude towards death is avowedly accelerationist that actually makes so much sense yeah yeah i i agree with you frank uh, uh go on yeah uh it, it's because it it really is like this moment of like, oh, it's death. It's like they're, they're, they're celebrating, like they're missing him. There's the acoustic guitar, there's the singing. There's just like this moment of them together, not just as like the biker gang, but also as friends, um, which is really interesting because we only pretty much see them as the biker gang. Um, and yet there they are in this particular ritual and moment for them. And what will happen? And I mean, I was thinking about that. Oh, sorry. I, I was just gonna say. I mean, he literally he literally rides out of death on a machine, right? <laughs> he literally yes. he literally he literally accelerates out of the grave itself. <laughs> and and he's yes, the only one yes. who is like the biker in that entire scene, and that's and that's how he returns, like riding out of death in 
it's yes. really cool resurrection yes. scene. And I think so. So, so we're talking about motorcycles, right? Like, and we need to talk about what the motorcycle is because I think it, it's too simple to call the motorcycle a vehicle, right? That's too too technical, too direct, right? Of course, it's a vehicle, but that doesn't move us anywhere. Pun intended. Hey, hey, hey. Um, hey. The, the the motorcycle is a machine, but it's a social machine. It's a cultural technology. Right. It's, it's a it's a symbolic object. You know, he's not he's not riding out of the grave on a VW Beetle. He's not riding out of the grave on a like four door sedan. You know, he, he's riding out of the grave on this very specific symbol of counterculture, of aggression, of violence. Like th- these are things that are like woven in to to the kind of identity of the 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 motorcycle, right? And like I think that's that there's so much weight to him being buried on this thing that can't stay dead. Yeah, and and in a way, like the bikes themselves are crossing over too. Like they are the main symbol of their continued life, and so are their clothes and all. Um, which brings about like this particular position and cultural image that like that is stronger than death in the movie. Yeah, um, I think it, I think it gets us into this really interesting conversation on on how we perceive death and, and how we interconnect with it, right? Because there's this there's a scene that I'm still kind of puzzling over in my head after Tom. <laughs> is resurrected by the ancient force of the satanic frog god. Um, he, he goes to refuel his bike, you know? And it's, it's, this, it's this leveling oh, yeah, moment yeah, yeah. of mundanity that now he's not, he's not just immortal, but, like, they also have powers, you know? Like, like they're, they're beings now. Like, like, they have transcended, and he still has to go gas up the old bike. Otherwise, he's hoofing it back to Ma's place. It's it's such a weird sequence, but I think like one of the things that got me thinking is that like individually we're going to die, but do you want to know what's going to outlive us? The damage industrialization and the use of fossil fuels has done to the world, right? Like that that is a that is if there, if there are demons more powerful than Tom and his frog god in this movie, it's this carbon polluting industrial apparatus that that even this kind of shadowy hand of a pre-roman god can't reach beyond hello 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 i'm back hello i'm back ah stunned you all into silence i see as you tend to do ash (laughs) so do we do we want to talk a, a bit about folk horror and and some of our favorite henges oh absolutely let's talk about folk horror so so john you're 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 from you're you're from haunted old frog country uh do you have a favorite henge there's oh sorry i was just looking this up i was just looking this up because i wanted to be sure that there are 316 stone circles in in the british in in england 187 in ireland 156 in northern ireland 81 stone circles in wales 49 in Brittany, and six in the channel islands well, that's a lot of henges. 
So uh, I have to be honest, I'm mostly familiar with the big one, you know, the big stone one. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I mean, Stone Stonehenge is like I know, I know, listeners, I know what you're thinking right now. Wow, they're so basic. Wow, that is that is so nouveau riche of them to love Stonehenge. But you know what? St Stonehenge earned its position. Stonehenge has worked so hard over the years as as a tourist trap and a place formerly where hippies used to do drugs and sleep. Uh, I, I have actually a picture on my fridge that I took while I was at Stonehenge, right? Um, and I, and I, it's actually a screenshot off my cell phone because you could play Pokemon Go at Stonehenge. And while I was there, there just happened to be a bunch of Gaslies roaming about. And it was this surreal collision of technologies that there's this like... We, we we have we have such a frail grasp of of the presence of Stonehenge and why it's here and when when what it was built for and and all of this like cultural mythology accreted around that and here here I am in like 2018 catching Pokemon. <laughs> oh, there is actually there is actually one that I have been to, uh, which is not Stonehenge, which is the Castle Rig Stone Circle, which uh, is uh, up near Keswick. Uh, in the north of England, uh, so yeah, there's there's a loads of them, but Stonehenge is, is by far the 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 biggest one. Quite the other most famous ones are probably in the uh, the Hebrides in Orkney and in the islands uh, to the north of Scotland. Yeah, you know, I just gotta 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 shout out to to Studley Pike right now. I know it's not a henge. I know it's only like three hundred or so years old, but the way it hangs over the Calder Valley, I, I've always respected. Um. But what are henges? What what are stone circles for? <laughs> what 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 are stone circles for? Um, generally, they're accepted as kind of like uh, ritual sites of of various kind of utilities and usage. Um, they are also points of, in the context of folk horror, right? Folk horror depends upon a couple of things, which is like a, a super specific localism. Like folk horror can't happen anywhere; it has to happen in very specific places. And it usually culminates in a, in a summoning or a ritual of some form. Um, that otherwise, otherwise your definitions end up getting kind of a little bit kind of messy because folk horror can be so many different kinds of thing. But those those two are generally really well accepted, um, kind of like criteria. So yes, this is a movie about. Uh, undead punks who ride bikes, but it's also a folk horror movie, right? Of course. I mean, Frog God and the Seven Witches, and it's all about dark rituals and sacrifice. The, the folk tradition isn't silent, right? We have this kind of false thinking about what folk is and that it, ha that it has to be trapped in the past. And, and certainly a lot of depictions, especially in folk horror, are referential to the past, but even you know, like it's being visited upon the present, right? A lot of a lot of folk is is this kind of temporal overlap of of some aspect of our past that is no longer recognized as part of us, colliding into our present moment. And I think uh, Psychomania is a really interesting movie in a sense because it's inverting that, right? It's 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 the it's a different appraisal of that same situation. And now we have the present in these motorcycle riding punk uh, biker gang colliding back in 
to a full it's like it's like a biker gang drove into the middle of wicker man and started raising hell yes yeah exactly exactly yeah it's not it's the modern it's the modern infringement upon like this this folk and and this folk horror but in a a very distinct way that is like i I mean uh, another recent example which you've talked about and it feels like more recent but anyway uh but midsummer is like oh it's this these other people who go into the weird place or even wickerman is like oh it's this particular place and like oh it's it is doing the sacrificing and the uh, consuming. But in this, it's like there's the tone of it with like the motorcycles, with the biker gang. It's so very different. It is still folk horror. It still plays with that notion. But it is so much more wild than expected. And, and that's why I think the the aspect about like it being this interstitial movie with the counterculture and the punk uh, it it also plays with like the with the countercultural aspects and the folk horror as well. It stands within these boundaries and like clashing in a way that's like, oh, okay, it's not the hit. What clashes? It's not the hippie aspect of it. It's not like oh, this coming into nature that oh that finds this folk horror. No, it is the exact opposite. It is the punk. It is the vi- the again violence, kinda. Uh, it is the biker gang. It is the motorcycle. That is what is infusing with the folk and the folk horror here. So it, again, it plays in between and in a really strange and interesting way. And that, again, like we go back to the funeral, there is nothing, the funeral is very hippie, it's very mellow, it's very light. And then what we're having next is like this unveiling of like what what the rituals are and, and what happened and the violence that ensues now that he's crossed over and undead and immortal. So it's a very strange folk horror, but it's still very much that. And and as we we eventually get into the Shadwell zone, I think that that only becomes clearer. Well, should we we embark then? Should Should we dare to head into the Shadwell zone? Yes, we got to talk about this movie's clear pr- uh, protagonist and hero, Shadwell. Uh, okay, so 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 who is this guy? <laughs> what what's going on here? Just uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna paint a word picture. Um, I want you to just close your eyes, take take a deep breath, let let that air out, and then just imagine your your vision of of human beauty. And now it, that individual is willing to stay by your side no matter what happens. And they're an emissary of a satanic frog god. That's, that's the Shadwell sauce. Um, yeah, Shadwell is this, this interesting, deep, just deeply weird, just deeply weird character. Um, a very, very softly spoken, very polite um, as I say, George Saunders, very charismatic actor, um, and has this kind of like, I mean, butlers, but taking the figure of a butler, I think is super interesting because they have a weird kind of like interstitial place in the social hierarchy, right? Classically speaking, they're supposed yeah. they're mm-hmm. supposed to be everywhere and at the same time completely invisible. Uh, they're supposed to be. Uh, they're supposed to kind of know everything, but also be incredibly discreet. 
so like th there's an awful lot of power in that position um and and Shadwell is the one who who wields the the deep magic the 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 frog magic who heralds the birth of the age of the frog um and, and it's just amazing <laughs> Well, I mean, like on a more serious note, Shadwell is a very important point as a character. Uh, Shadwell embodies a very important point about kind of the power of the union, right? Because Shadwell's this this working figure, right? He's just a butler. He's a servant, you know? Um, but Shadwell, as we find out at the end of the movie, actually holds all the cards, right? Shadwell isn't a butler. Shadwell is just... A, a visage or an emissary or or maybe even the literal incarnation of this like satanic frog resurrecting power you know Sh shadwell chaperones this entire thing like that's actually his role this whole time has has been that and not the butler the butler is a ruse and i think that's an important statement that the, the power lies with the working people of this world wow but yes <laughs> That's definitely the case. <laughs> well, I, I I actually think then that that brings up something super important, which is like the class relationships here. Oh yeah, uh, uh, and uh, we 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 should absolutely talk about Tom and his his strange strange family, uh, his missing father, uh, the the butler that secretly is controlling and pulling the strings behind the scenes. Uh, but to do that. Um, should we talk about the room? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had, kind of have to talk about how this is like Tarkovsky doing a biker movie. How convenient that you just did a stalker episode, isn't it? <laughs> oh, maybe we're still in the zone. Maybe we can't get out. I mean, that make, that actually would make a lot of sense. So uh, it, it turns out I think I think it's like 12 minutes into this movie. Uh it turns out that Tom uh Tom's father is is missing, gone, presumed is missing, presumed dead. And there is there is a room in the, the house that contains uh it's kind of some 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 dark occult knowledge about how to literally conquer death itself. Um what what do you both think about this? What do you both think about the room? Would you like to go first? Oh, I can Frank? I can go first. I'll, I'll try. Hell yeah! <laughs> it's I mean it 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 was really bizarre because we we have the biker gang and we have like this very weird relationship because we're introduced to to Shadwell to Mrs. Layton and how she is like we we can talk about this as well. But in the credits, they're all like um separated by groups and her mother and, and the other people are defined as the spiritualists because she has conducted a seance and is then like a nosed back into tranquility by shadwell and and then we start talking about this room this room that's been locked for 18 years since tom's dad has died disappeared and the room's been locked up ever since and the room can um uh, can destroy you but it can also grant you the secret or the power if you're strong enough so i was i fortunately had listened to the stalker episode so i was like oh wow this is this is familiar um and so this room which is 
there's just a mirror. And in the mirror, there are the visions of the frog god and the offering of, um, of Tom as this sacrifice to the satanic and the pact that his mother signed. And the room is, in a sense... Because the, what we see is that the room doesn't necessarily give away the secret. It gives, like, the reasoning. And then Tom learns the secret by Shadwell and his mother talking about how crossing over works. So, in the sense, like, the room sort of creates the circumstances by pointing out the truth or the revelation. Um, this apocalyptic force that brings about everything that comes after. Because... As we're t what we find in the room is just Tom's dad's glasses. That's all that's in the room other than the creepy mirror, which gives vis visions. So the room is can both be this revelation, but utter destruction as well. And Tom... I mean, it's really interesting because like he goes inside, the room sort of shuts itself off. And then like eventually through his weird trip... He wakes up sort of knocked out uh, in the next room, ba back in the living room. So he he survives, but not entirely unscathed. So did, was there any conquering? Was there just a survival? The room itself is incredibly mysterious and only shows up at the beginning and is then gone. Um, but it's still incredibly important to the entire development of the story as well. So I have no real conclusions, only more questions. <laughs> what, what about hell yeah? What about you, Ash? Do you, do you have any? Do you have any answers? Do you have any deep room lore for us? <laughs> well, I, I find the room to be really interesting. I love how this movie presents. Uh, I, I love I love cinema that presents kind of occultic force as something that can't really be directly understood you know like like th this this has very a dark song vibes you know like like the the presence and the weight of this room almost crushes tom just for being in it mm. you know and, and he's he's supposedly wearing this frog medallion as some kind of force of protection but it never seems to do anything for him better or worse you know what he learns in that room what he encounters in that room you know all, all we're left with is him holding his father's glasses and that's still very ambiguous you know, like like there there's there's mystery to the room. What the room gives Tom or takes from him is kind of unknown to us. Um, but there's something also like weirdly gendered about the space of the room. There's something about this movie that's that's really interesting is the kind of absence of this kind of paternalistic force. You know, Tom Tom's father attempts to become so you become immortal in the world in the world of psychomania by wanting to die and then dying and then having the full belief in your heart that you're coming right back. Like, like that's the secret sauce to living forever. Tom's dad attempted this, but as uh, Tom's mom intimates to us, you know, when he was on the other side, he, he found something else and didn't cross back over. You know, he, he chose a different path. And then you have, you know, Tom literally entering this kind of manifestation of his father and being, like, crushed by it, right? And then kind of tricking his mom into revealing it. And, like, this is such a bizarre... This movie is, like, a juggling act where, like, we're getting a Monty Python skit 
And then, and then like, like, but like, that's the distraction. And the follow up to that is a roundhouse punch of like occult, psychedelic, abstract cinema. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it gets, it gets so weird so quickly. Uh, but I, I, I actually really agree with both of you. And I super respect the fact that the film never really spells out exactly what's going on. Oh yeah. Um, and, and and then we move into into an exploration of 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 the motorcycle gang who uh, 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 this is where the film turns again so we've had this kind of like we have the opening which is kind of all of these occult this occult ceremony you have the funeral which is this kind of folk horror moment and then in between those you have these moments with the motorcycle gang which is just like you know the the youths the youths running wild in the streets of britain uh which is a great sort of like moral panic moment as just as that was like every generation has the whole thing of like the younger generation are, are dangerous or like out of control and so we have it in this t- in this this period of time where they're like driving through the town center on their bikes and chasing people and stealing the ice cream cart it's which is very it's very very silly. <laughs> yes. Deeply. But I think you know one of the things that's very interesting to me about the depiction of this biker gang is how it's incredibly silly but also reflects this this very real fear of like youth gone wild, right? This is kind of a late teen exploitation film coming out of Britain. And you have that same element where, like, like if if this would have been made fifty years ago, it would have been a greaser gang and their hot rod. Yeah, yeah, it would have it would have been like it would have been like Teddy Boys, you know, with a slicked back. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yep, yeah, right, yeah, yep. You you know, like, and if it would have been made ten years later, it would have been like, you know, punks and skins or in like something like that, you know. Uh, But at the same time, like, what they're doing is so absurd and ridiculous. You know, like they just like drive their motorcycle into a grocery store and go, "I'm going to run over this baby," and like, like then they they ride their motorcycles into the the cop shop and free their friends, and then they ride their motorcycles into other you know public squares and just like they're just like general havoc. Every every single YouTube prank account has done more damage to society on a material level than the bikers do in this movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm speechless, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's an important point because this movie is kind of pointing out to us that like, and I've seen this in my own friends, right? Like I'm, I'm like a, a middle tier millennial, right? Not on the older end, not on the younger end, right? Right in the center. And like even some of my friends are, are starting to like hit me with that like, ooh, you see what these Gen X or these I'm sorry, Gen Zers are up to? Ooh, uh, these kids. Oh yeah, and I'm the, like, I don't the Don Zoomers. Who cares? <laughs> who 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 I who cares? The they're, they're teens, teens, teens teens need to be weird. That is their social function. They do weird stuff. That's great. And like this movie is just like in a way it's laughing at everyone who's like, oh my god. Like I, I heard, I heard that TikTokers are. Uh, oh my god, what was that fucking thing that was happening last week, where where people were trying to like on TikTok? There was like a trend where people were trying to do as much sinning in a in a short window of time. Hellmaxing, hashtag Hellmax six six six. 
People were, it was it was like this like late satanic panic resurgence of fear that the teens were just like sinning to score social media points and it's just like come on yeah it's like oh no the the, the zoomers like because this this film this film simultaneously thinks like the the wild 18 year old bikers are completely out of control but they're presented as basically being like cartoon villains and i uh-huh. i mean like I, yep. I mean like children's cartoon villains where it's like oh no they they sprayed shaving cream in the policeman's face and they ran away <laughs> but it's like that's also yep. that's also like the end of society <laughs> <laughs> and and i think not to belabor the point here but like actual statistical research shows that generation after generation right like you know like millennials are less likely to engage in kind of uh you know, indiscriminate sex, like millennials are less likely to do drugs. Millennials are less likely to do all of these things that like uh, boomers were worried about when we were teens. And and research kind of demonstrates that uh, Gen Z is continuing this trend, right? They're even more put together than we were. And like, there's a reason why these fears are so like ludicrous. It's always like weird stuff, you know, like, like the, ah, sorry, I'm like melting down over like how, how how much of a clear lancing this 50-year-old movie does of kind of intergenerational conflict. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there is one element, though, that I think we have to talk about. Um, we, I, we, we've talked about the ways in which uh, the, the kids who are presented here are, like, very, very uh, goofy and kind of silly and are treated as, like, a nuisance more than anything. And at the same time, they're, they're like the the biggest threat to a, to a civilization, but we should talk about sandwiches <laughs> because because yes. I am I'm obsessed with one of the scenes in this film. <laughs> but just, it's truly perfect. Yes. Uh. So 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 Tommy and we we can focalize on Tommy here to talk about like the presentations of youth and like class position and things like that. So Tommy comes back with the frog. That he's found that with the magic frog and hands it over to the emissary of the frog god, uh, the the incarnation of power that is Shadwell, and makes Shadwell explain exactly what's going on in a kind of magical sense, but but does this at the same time as just demolishing an absolutely <laughs> enormous sandwich. <laughs> um I, it's just a perfect it's just a perfect bit of cinema um and i wanted to know what you both thought about that <laughs> sandwiches frank what are what are your sandwich takes i mean i i think the sandwiches is, is very much like it, it it sort of breaks that scene entirely because uh, i mean i think this is like the second or third scene in the movie uh, as like he's talking about the frog, and he's like, "Yeah, no, that what's important is the sandwich." Because like the focalization, as Chad was explaining, is on him eating the sandwich, and it's just like the focus is not really Shadwell in that moment. It's not really um, even Tommy in that fr- particular frame. It's the sandwich. The sandwich is the focal yes. point, and it's just like it. it it successfully destroys pretty much all the tone and all that's going on in that scene. It's really powerful. 
And there's and there's and there's two things I want to pick apart with the sandwich really quick. The first is that like the sandwich is in a class of food that is is very dedicatedly working class, right? It is highly portable way of having a quick meal while you're on the job. You know, sandwiches, pasties, uh, hot pocket types, you know, like like all of these foods are designed for quick on-the-go consumption because they're aimed at people who are denied enough time to eat. Tommy's rich. He lives he lives in a little mansion in the countryside with mommy. They come from money. Like like Tommy is also he's play acting when he's a biker, right? Part of the reason the cops don't take it all seriously is because he comes he's well bred. He comes from fine stock. Uh, just as him putting on this biker retire is him play acting as a working class ruffian. Him eating this sandwich is him literally absorbing working class iconography into his being because he doesn't naturally contain it. Further, uh, uh, in, in this this joke readily presents itself five dollar foot long. The Subway sandwich is possibly the most homoerotic food, second to the hot dog, right? And sausages, perhaps we'll throw in there, and maybe those giant gummy worms. Um, but there, but there's, but it's up there. It's in the top five, right? And and his and his like death grip on on this thing while he's he's like, you know, just working the subway sandwich. It's it's one of the few invocations of a kind of homoeroticism in a movie that is all about a dude kind of just just jumping across the screen in tight leather pants for the entire duration of the film. Okay, okay, I, okay, I, I, I was, I was not expecting this, but I feel like you've just kind of uh, unlocked part of this, you know, part of my brain has just sort of unfolded <laughs> into, in, into, into the, into, into queer sandwich theory that we can use as a, as a, as a mode, as a, as a, as a theoretical uh, perspective, positionality on this text. Um, and it makes the whole, it makes his whole um, romantic relationship even more complicated, right? He's he's insistent that this woman die for him, and she constantly refuses. There's this sort of thwarted, mm-hmm. this thwarted uh, uh, relationship there that happens as well. Um, it, it, yes, it might just be very strange filmmaking, but it is also, it is also kind of very revealing. Um, should we should we talk about how how uh, uh, Tommy is a is kind of a class traitor? Then this was something you said, Ash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Tom Tommy's character, there's a lot of back and forth. It's pretty interesting, right? Like he's he's simultaneously a rich guy who's appropriating working class culture, but you know you can also view him as someone who's trying to destabilize that, right? Who, who's trying to reject this this kind of like false upper class attitude that's been pressed into him right and kind of reconnect with with something more real something more lived um i i think it winds up being a little fetishistic um and incomplete but like frank what are your thoughts and if you have any also if you have any thoughts on like a queer reading of this text like please throw it out of course i I mean i think in terms of like tommy and class like it's really because I mean, mentioning a bit about, about the gang, like they're all wearing like the the, the the leather the leather attire, and they're all like biker gang and whatnot, except for his girlfriend, uh, who apparently lives in a flat and wears like this weird like 
Um, ah, oh, I, I didn't write that down. But like a much more simple and cheaper fabric uh, as a jacket. Uh, because, I mean, it, it's identifiable because all of their proper jackets have their names on it. And hers, Abby, is not a leather jacket at all. It's the only one who doesn't. And, and yet she's the one who is both closest to Tom, being his girlfriend, and, like, the most sensible one, and, and the one who does not want to die. And so, like, the the engagement with that is really interesting, I, I thought. Because, like, what we have as, like, the fig, even as, like, oh, it's the youths causing chaos, is not really, even as thinking of Tom as, like, this... Because he really is like uh, perpetrating this violence against like this, I mean the the supermarket scene where they literally drive inside and drive into the police station like not caring and that that is a comedy skit as him and Jane park in front of like the police station reception and just like oh what are, what are you doing here what are your names and he's like it's just this whole deadpan scene where they're like. They're in their motorbikes. They broke into the police station and are sitting there in their bikes. And it's just like dead serious. Like no one is like, oh, we got to do something. No, no, it's just like, oh, who are you? So, uh, yes, uh, I think Tom is a class traitor, but I think only so far because him and, and the others like there's. I, I think I can't really get away from the way that they're sort of absorbing that. But it's good in terms of like the movie because it's not like it's not the uh, the working class kids like perpetrating the violence. It's not like oh, it's the, the there go the working class again doing violence. Look how they how awful they are. No, it, it's it's this middle class kids and like the sensible one is the more working class one is the one who has a different sort yeah. of attire from yeah. a lower strata. Hell yeah! So fuck yeah! <laughs> Legendary. Yeah. Uh, uh, That's so true. Which was very cool. And like, uh, the, the more that I was thinking about it, huh, that's good and interesting. And just, yeah, I, I th- this movie has a lot that it's doing with class in ways that like, the more I spend time thinking about it, the more that it's, it, it gets deeper. Because like, at the end of the day, she's the final girl taking those tabs. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, she's just, sensible like she she's not extraordinary she's not like oh done this impossible thing like she's um if the others are like and even to a degree like i I think we can give them a discount as like wild youths uh she is she's the most sensible one she's like "Mm, i'm not sure about this and like even as she like because there's this moment where she attempts to cross over but doesn't die and she's like no i I don't want to do this after all at least i'm not dead that's good um, and she's like, mm, maybe I want to break up with my boyfriend who, um, who is immortal and all powerful now. And she asks, like, the police inspector's like, oh, what do you do? Do I just, do I try to talk? If you want to break up with someone who you've been with for a long time, do you talk to them about it or do you just distance yourself yeah, from yeah. them? Yeah, or do you, or you just sort of like dip out and ghost them completely? <laughs> how how do I do breakups, Mister Policeman? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as always in a horror movie, the police are completely inefficient. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that is a that is a woeful understatement of the state of things in this movie. 
all of these all of these adorable little bobbies are just wandering around just just i i feel like they just keep repeating the phrase what's all this then over and over and over hello again. hello hello what's going on here Morning, governor. Just, just, just like they're, they're, they're like, uh, uh, like these Dickensian street urchin equivalent of a cop. Yes. Like, there's a murder charge now. Now it's serious. I mean, and this happens after five murders have been committed in one night by right. one person. It's like, but now it's serious. So, uh, we're, we're a little over an hour. In today's recording, shall we, in the proper tradition of reckless motorcycle youths, don our leather jackets and race through the rest of our topics? I think we should. I think we should. Um, All right. Next um, next up on bat, we have uh, depictions of, of youth. How do we how we feel in how we feel in Frank? Well, I, th- have, I think we've kind of covered that one quite a bit so far. Excellent. Then let's continue. Yeah. <laughs> There is there is one element there is one element of this which I I actually think is quite philosophically interesting right which is this uh, the idea of like what the the relationship to death right and the li, li, honestly I've never seen a film which more takes more literally the psychoanalytic phrase death drive like not there is there is no there is nothing figurative here we are literally driving towards death as intently as possible with the idea that like the way out of the death drive the way out of of kind of the annihilationist impulse of the self is to annihilate it even more uh this is what i meant when i said that this film is this 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 is kind of like has a sort of uh it's about the intensification it's about the acceleration of 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 self-destruction to the end of self-transformation yes <laughs> yes it, it, it's like it's i mean what how clearer can you get like you need to do it believing and with no doubts is the weirdest leap of faith i have probably also ever seen in a movie um embrace death drive to death and beyond in and continuous death but life uh it is annihilation in the most complete scale that like yeah just die and if you die enough you come back and you're dead but you but and you're already dead is is i mean that's the i think that was what, another of the weird things like you only need to die once and that's fulfilled like in a sense by dying and believing in death enough, you overcome the death drive in its literal way. Yes, absolutely, right? It's, it's sort of like you can shatter it by, by literally accelerating your motorbike into the brick wall of, like, terminal velocity. <laughs> Ash? Just, just clipping right through death. You know, just just ulti- ultimate death speed run, and then you wind up clipping through death right through the end credits back to the start menu. I, I find I find this to be really interesting, right? Because the death drive is the drive towards death and annihilation, but it's also the drive of death, right? The 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 kind of continued movement of that which should be gone, and that that it really speaks to the kind of like countercultural discourse that's going on in this movie because the, there winds up being this kind of like. 
death drive that gets embodied by like hippie culture and punk culture to the point where now they're like these these weird metastasized recuperated objects you know that are like uh halloween costumes right they've been summed down and stripped and mined and devoured and reprocessed and and tom is trying so desperately to escape that right like 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 that that like long grind right like the the 40 four decades of work as as some kind of like you know office guy or something right like to 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 be the heir to this rich family and do nothing or even worse probably by tom's estimation to get a job <laughs> you know it's it's this kind of grinding wheel it's the grist for the mill that he fears and i think underneath everything is still that kind of fear yeah i think in that is what ties it the most to him as a class trader like he's genuine and sincere about the whole thing unto death yeah so uh do we want to talk about the end of today's film uh i i love the ending i it it so it turns out that that um Tom is basically uh, planning to to remake the world, um, and 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 I I feel like we could we have to kind of talk about his plan. Uh, when it turns out he his mother confront confronts him about um, you know all of the murdering, uh, <laughs> and, and <laughs> she goes okay. So what exactly is the plan here? And Tom lists off this. Um, this enormous uh, number of, of 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 different kind of groups that are basically going to get got, uh, which includes teachers, politicians, judges, like parents, people who stay, say you can't stay up late and watch TV when you want, uh, your friends who are mean to you, your te- like, like it's this. I, I I have to be. I have to ask. What do you both think about? You know his big plan here. Sam. Um... I, I I didn't think it was that well thought out. Uh, <laughs> I, I I do appreciate Shadwell on that scene going, you're talking about murdering the entire establishment. And he's like, yeah, everyone. And he's like, okay. Um, yeah, it, it feels very... I mean, all he wants to do is drive around with the living dead literally living dead uh and just commit murdering it's um it's not much of a plan as an experience well, yeah it's really more of a vibe than it is a concrete goal oriented yeah. thing he's doing yeah uh the the vibes the vibes are the vibes are all that's driving this no thoughts only vibes murderous yeah. death drive <laughs> yeah. vibes yeah. Yeah, the, oh, yeah. No, no thoughts. Only the the vibrations of the death drive towards the annihilation of all living consciousness. <laughs> have Have we discovered the nihilism equivalent of the himbo in Tom? Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> but so so really, really, I find I find this to be interesting, right? Because this is such a lambast of what would come to be like the deep internal struggle of punk culture. 
because there, there, there are these intermingling threads of serious and committed political movements that, that are well-reasoned and rooted in music as, as has traditionally been the case. You know, where the working people of this world often turn to art and music is in a very, a very accessible, low-technology way to hook into art as a way to voice their grievances and have that heard. Um, even in spite of overarching capitalistic machinery, uh, and yet there's still that kind of juvenilia that comes with it. And Tom is just like, he, he's, he's the living embodiment of like, I want a mohawk, but my mom won't let me get one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, all I want to do is murder whoever I want, but mom. <laughs> and at the end, who, who stops everything? It's mom. That's true. Yeah, we have to talk about absentee parents. <laughs> you know, because because you, you, you get you get the feeling that mom has been very hands off with Tom, and has been has been very like, oh, you know, Tom Tom's just being a boy when he's like murdering those animals in the backyard. Yeah, I can very much imagine that she's doing her own thing with Shadwell, and just like, oh, Tom will do his own thing. He'll be fine. He's fine. Yeah, I think I think it speaks to like on a more serious note. There's like a, a conversation about intergenerational conflict that's going on in this film, right? And like Mrs. Latham and Shadwell have the kind of you know not to sum things down because there are boomers that are more committed to political justice than I'll ever be, you know, that have done more work than any, likely anyone I will have ever met, you know, and certainly people who died before that, and there are people younger now who who the same thing could be said for, you know, like mm-hmm. like intergenerational conflict is an illusion. But this film is speaking to kind of this received cultural attitude, right? Like Latham has that boomer mentality of nothing's wrong, everything's fine. You just we just got to keep on coasting. You kids don't know how lucky you've got it. And meanwhile, like Tom is ripping his hair out because everything is wrong and he doesn't have the language to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, he's frustrated, really, about everything. <laughs> and and his family's probably a big part because, like, there's no intimacy between him and his, and his mother. Like, they live together, presumably, and are there. And that's about it. I mean, it takes... Yeah, this is, this is a very loveless film. Yeah. Like, it yeah. takes him to die for her to meet his girlfriend. <laughs> brutal but true but but eventually she she seems to uh kind of gather some awareness of exactly what is going on uh and we come we come to the end the very final sequence um and i am i'm super curious to know what you both think about how this film ends how things end for the living dead Oh, it's ultimately, I think it's a bit sad or quite sad, really. Um, And I think you both put it in in our show notes in the best way possible. What happens to kids who don't behave? Stone. Um, (laughs) Because as uh, Chekhov's folk story about the seven witches who turn to stone, that's what happens to the undead living dead members. Uh, they are turned to stone, quite sadly. Um, they don't get any sort of redemption or justification or hope. It's just 
Yeah, no, you, you've crossed over and now I, your mother, have decided that that's enough. And as such, it's over for all of you. And I, I, I generally think that for the living dead, it's very tragic. Um, because for her, she becomes a frog. I don't know what that means, but she becomes a frog, um, which is, I mean, at the very least, a living thing. Um, but the others, they become stone. And we're not sure whether they die or they're turned to self-aware stones, unable to act and just, like, frozen there forever or until destruction or something. And I just, I can't help but find that tragic. That, like, yeah, sh- sure, they did, they did quite a few murderings and a tiny bit of mayhem or pathetic or comedic mayhem, but... And okay, they were pressuring Abby into turning into an undead, or they were going to kill her. Uh, weird, weird scenario. But still, uh, it, as even as rebellious youths and this very weird undead, um, I can't help but pity them in a way for such a grim fate that wasn't even in their hands. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And like, I, I read the turning to stone because you can't kill them, right? Nothing can kill them. They live yeah. beyond death now. However, as the saying goes, there are worse fates than death. Yeah. You know, death, that death is baked in, right? To, to that Caitlin Doherty quote I used in the Precy, like death is part of the fabric of our reality. It is undeniable. Um, but it is far from the worst thing that can happen to you. And what happens to Tom and crew is that they're arguably what's happening to them is they're, they're robbed of agency and legacy. Yeah. Right. Like they, their impact in society has stopped, right? Their ability to interact is over. And even though it's not a literal death, it becomes this kind of cultural death that they experience, right? The, the human as, as a creature in an object is not, an individual we're not a solitary body you know we are we're interconnected right like through through our thoughts and through our society our, our society is our mycelia right like it interconnects us and they've been pulled out of that right this is a this is a cosmic exile that they're facing um but what, what i think is really interesting in the ending too is that we've got like We've got thesis, uh, the order of society is well and good, and and the well-bred gentry of satanic frog magic are in charge and everything's fine. Um, Antithesis, uh, biker kids from hell are going to destroy their parents, their teachers, and the entire system. Uh, And then we've got this kind of like synthetic moment at the ending where we have... We have Tom's Tom's girlfriend. We we we've got her a sur- the only survivor because she didn't go through with the ritual. The movie's final girl and Shadwell coming together at the end, right? Connecting, right? The the vehicle for satanic frog magic and the the representation of kind of you know like 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 what what is the final girl if not the pure synthesis of a movie's ideology of who should survive. Of of who has both earned and deserved their victory over the horrors of the film, moving forward together into a new and equally uncertain future. And to kind of add something else to this, I think you're right. There is there is something there is something that is worse than than death, which is the kind of the reification of the idea into the object, right? So yeah, if you think of them as the as the kind of 
avatars, the the uh, literal embodiments of the accelerationist nihilism of punk, it literally calcifies. It 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 ossifies right in front of our eyes, right at the end. All of the kind of potentially transgressive, transformative energy of of the the punk acceleration of the motorbike plowing through bourgeois domesticity gets turned into history gets turned into it gets turned into the past and they're con- condemned really to be frozen in time for that moment forever and if you look at like what happened to the, you know the punk stars of the 70s like Johnny Rotten who turned into like a, a an advert happy trump guy yeah you know, isn't that yeah. isn't that the worst thing about the, the punk in the seventies? What it turned into now, you know, it's it's virulent hippie phobia actually actually uh, kind of serving to throw into sharp relief the fact that in many ways the hippies didn't sell out in the same way. They didn't become literally just just encased in the stone of capitalist realism, <laughs> like. I think the ending I think the ending is so bleak but is is in some ways a kind of preemptive critique of the failures and insufficiencies of punk as a cultural zeitgeist. And and this I think is one of the most important things to highlight about this movie, right? Cuz cuz it gets it right. This is 73. This is way before punk is this fully congealed recognizable thing and punk has always been the the sellout's capitalistic art. You know, like like from its founding moments, did without getting into like any any of the debate about like oh is punk American is punk British doesn't matter. You know, like it, it is it is simultaneously cleft and born of this thing, but then you have like serious committed political movements that exist within inside inside of that, and I think that's what we see calcifying here, and that this for me becomes the scariest moment of the movie. Right, but because these these because Tom doesn't have any kind of internal critique, because he's not willing to listen, because he's a, he's an authoritarian hierarchical patriarch who is commanding his legion to do his bidding, he's calcified. Right, he does not learn the lesson. You know, he he fails to do things differently. He fails to advance things at all, and so he freezes. You know, because what would he have accomplished outside of just putting new paint on the same power structure? Oh yeah. Also, yeah, fuck the Sex Pistols. What trash? <laughs> I mean, well, this is '73, so what? Two years later, uh, Johnny Rotten joins the Sex Pistols, and McLaren starts managing them. And like this film, mm-hmm. th- this film knew where the punks were going. Yeah, and thought that they probably couldn't do anything about it. Um, yeah, and it was right. Any any final thoughts, uh, Ash and Frank? Any final thoughts? Uh, Karl Marx really did fail to predict Big D in the kids' table, didn't he? <laughs> I think that's the takeaway lesson here. Uh, what about you, Frank? Um, I, I, I just aesthetically, this movie is so bizarre. I mean, I love the haircuts; they're they're just on point. Oh, hell yeah. And Abby's uh, more like genuinely like androgynous kind of look is fantastic. Um, so yeah, I, th- this, this was an experience and an aesthetic one as well, which is always great. And, uh, I, I can't help but mention, um, I want to thank, uh, my great friend Jen for, uh, showing, telling me about this movie 
uh, and then making being somewhat indirectly responsible for all of this happening. So thank you, Jen. <laughs> this is your fault. Yes, also thank you, Jen, uh, whom I don't know, but who I also need to thank for indirectly getting me to watch Psychomania. <laughs> it, it is. It has been. It has been a. a tr- this has been a treat. Uh, this has just been just uh, a wonderful continuation of requests month here on HV. Uh, please do check out the left page. Listen to the show. Uh, do follow left page and Frank uh, on Twitter. Um, say hi to us uh, on on the social medias as well. You can find the show. You can find Ash and me on Twitter. And um, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And stay spooky. Stay spooky. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky. Excellent.